0: To the extent that, is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at at americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, welcome to the podcast. This podcast is called Robot Rules, and I'm your host, Ted Claypool. The concept behind this podcast was um, for um, marketing and or uh, promotion of a book by the, from the uh, ABA business law section titled The Law of Artificial Intelligence and Smart Machines. I am um, the editor of the book, which means that I helped figure out the, the chapter order and what we would write about, and I wrote a little bit of it. But what was lucky was I was able to get many, many terrific lawyers to write chapters Uh, along with me, and today we get a chance to talk to one of those folks. Um, We're going to talk to Steve Wu, who is a cyber lawyer extraordinaire um, in San Jose with the Silicon Valley Law Group, and um, he has done a lot in the space of of artificial intelligence, and he wrote our chapter on um, artificial intelligence and product liability. And so we're going to talk to him a little bit today. Uh, Steve, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Ted. Great to join you.
0: Well, we tend to start this podcast with a, with a general question of everybody, which is um, because no one really knows the precise definition. How do you define artificial intelligence?
1: At its most succinct, I think of artificial intelligence as machines simulating features of human intelligence. We see evidence of humans playing chess, being able to drive cars, Uh, recording things and and, uh, translating language, all kinds of tasks that humans do. And now we have machines that do these same kinds of things. We're building towards a system someday that we may have of artificial general intelligence where we have machines that can talk with people and think and process information and think of the system as something that uh, plans and executes those plans over time and thinks of itself as as an individual entity. So we're not at that stage yet, but in in the short run we have machines that simulate features of human intelligence. And you can think of machines doing that by perceiving the world or taking in information reasoning or understanding what the system is doing at that time, where it's placed in space or on a road, something like that, and then taking action in response. So often you have this this triad of perception, reasoning and action summarizing how an, an AI behaves.
0: Terrific. Well, you, you've you done a lot of work in this space, both your, your regular legal work and um, a lot of the writing and the speaking you do is in this area. Um, how did you get interested in in artificial intelligence and robotics?
1: Well, dial back to when I was in high school and uh, in in college. I was a, a science fiction fan. I really loved to read stories about AI and robotics and I knew I wanted to become a lawyer, but if you said, how did you spend your spare time Why I was looking at uh, reading books on AI and robotics, so I got interested in the field that way. I never thought in my wildest imaginations that I might be able to someday combine that interest with law practice, but here we are.
0: And, And how have you combined it with law practice?
1: Well, I... I think of my practice as moving towards artificial intelligence and robotics to capture this idea that we're seeing, especially in the last two years, a exponential growth in artificial intelligence and robotics in the business world and the the widespread use of it. So uh, seeing that made me think that this is the time to really dive deeply into this as a practice area. But over time, you could, I look back on my own uh, career path, and in the 80s, I w- uh, when I graduated from high school in 1981, I was in this process of learning how to program computers, and I thought this is this is really interesting stuff. I really like computers and. Uh, too bad I have to leave all this stuff behind because I'm going to practice law. But in the late 1980s, when I was in law school, I started hearing about copyright cases and software, and I became a computer lawyer. And then when the Internet came along, I saw opportunity there, I became an Internet lawyer. And in 2007, um, I was uh, attending the RSA conference, which is the world's biggest information security conference, and Ray Kurzweil spoke and he was talking about artificial intelligence and robotics and automated transportation and all the changes that those technologies would lead to, and the light bulb went off again, and I said, hey, I I, I really want to take up AI and robotics as a practice area. So that's how uh, I could could draw a straight line from computers to Internet to Internet security to AI and robotics in that way, and my career just naturally progressed along that, that line.
0: Well, how does it actually manifest in your career? I mean, do you represent AI companies? Do you negotiate in this field? Do you litigate? How how does it work?
1: I think we're in early days of all the AI and robotics stuff, so um, the the first matters that I've been dealing with have been representing AI companies, representing automated transportation companies, and robotics application companies in the area of compliance and transactions in particular. So those are early day signs that That legal issues are here and these are the first ones and we're going to have more down the road but um, right now my clients are mostly vendors so they're trying to sell their products and services so they need contracts in order to sell their products and services and make money so that's how uh, an early day legal practice looks like and of course they're worried about how do I comply with the law what kinds of laws apply to my company and what do I need to do to comply with it so I'm working on these compliance and and transactional matters but Also, we have less of this, but I'm seeing that uh, I'm, I'm predicting that this will grow more and more over time, which is thinking about liability and product liability in particular and saying, what do I need to do to make sure that I mitigate my risk of product liability suits? And I've also been involved in investigations, and you can think of data breaches as one one manifestation of an investigation, and then I am writing privacy policies and security policies and have done that for a long time for non-AI companies, but now moving into AI companies and and helping them with the privacy and security programs. And over time, I see that at some point we will have um, AI policies like AI risk assessments, um, doing AI risk assessments, and having different policies and procedures re- regarding the operation or procurement of AI systems as being as common as we have of internal privacy policy documents. So everybody's got a privacy policy on the website. People have pro- a lot of companies have privacy policies for internal management and procedural documents, and I could see how over time we'll have similar documents in the AI and robotics field.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and Steve, this may be a East Coast West Coast split thing, but in our practice, while we do a little bit for um, for vendors, we're do, we're doing more for um, actually paid by regulators to come in and help them think through what they're doing uh, in AI, how they should regulate it, how they should bring it in their own enterprises, and then um, some big companies that are already or think they will soon be customers on that, yes, so
1: I, I was we're doing a, a lot on call. that side. Yeah, I was on a conference call with another ABA group, and um, we were talking about how there's a different perspective between vendors and customers about AI systems and robots, and my practice is, because I'm in the Silicon Valley, and this is where all the vendors are growing up, I'm, I'm representing a lot of vendors.
0: Yeah, no, that makes but, a lot of sense.
1: But they, they are also, when, when my Client, vendor clients are, are selling their products and services. At the same time, they are procuring products and services from other companies, so they are customers as well.
0: Oh, yeah, no question. Well, it's interesting. You've done, you've, you've done some early writing about product liability in AI, robotics, and, and automated transportation. Um, why did you want to address product liability as, as an aspect of this?
1: Two reasons, one is I had done work on product liability litigation in one of the law firms I worked at, Jones Day, back in the early 1990s, and continued that at my uh, my, my second uh, firm, which was Kirkpatrick and Lockhart, now k Gates, and when I was doing product liability litigation, I saw some of the issues associated with that. I saw how there was a lot of uh, liability associated, or at least having to defend these claims, And when I was thinking about AI and robotics, I was thinking, we're going to see similar kinds of things. But more importantly, the second thing was I tried to ask myself, from the perspective of a manufacturer or a vendor, like the clients that I represent, what would be the number one risk that they might face in providing products Relating to AI and robotics, and I thought the number one risk would be product liability because product liability has the potential of leading to liability that could put a, a company out of business. So you look at a company like Johns-Manville in the asbestos area; it they had to go that company had to go through a bankruptcy process in order to uh, manage all the liabilities associated with asbestos. We could have a similar type of outcome for other companies, maybe not at that, that scale, but at least we might have very large dollar amounts of judgments and settlements needed to resolve liability, as we can see from the Toyota sudden acceleration litigation and the GM ignition switch litigation. We see these types of big dollar cases, and I thought this is, this is something that people should pay attention to. I also went to the 2012 Automated Vehicle Symposium in Detroit, put on by a trade group, and the audience was polled and asked, what do you think is the number one barrier to adoption of autonomous vehicle technology? And people put legal issues as number one, and I read that to to mean product liability.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in in your chapter, you talk about various different um, types of product liability suits and and where they come from. Um, Which ones do you see most likely? Um, us seeing early in the autonomous vehicle um, era?
1: Well, I I have uh, in front of me the complaint against Tesla Motors by uh, Su Hua Huang, and uh, this has to do with an engineer riding a Tesla vehicle and crashing into a gore point on Highway 101 in Mountain View, California. And you could... If you as you go through the, the complaint you could see causes of action for negligence, strict liability, and failure to warn. So these are very typical types of claims that you see in product liability cases. When I was a law clerk and doing product liability cases back in the nineteen nineties, I saw similar kinds of claims relating to other types of products and Uh, had to do with general automobiles and guns and and lawn products and things like that. Uh, I did a case for O.M. Scott & Sons, and uh, uh, so these are types of claims that you would typically see in product liability. We're now seeing these similar kinds of claims in the automated vehicle case uh, here in Mountain View, and I, I assume that we will see very similar types of claims for other future AV cases plus cases relating to robots and. AV systems that are in physical products that cause or allegedly cause uh, bodily injury and and uh, property damage.
0: That makes sense. But you and you also talk in your uh, chapter about warranty cases. I don't even know does uh, Tesla
1: um, warrant its self driving pieces. I don't know exactly what the Tesla warranty says, so I, I can't speak to that. But um
0: I mean, I just seem uh, just just in general. I mean, not even uh, thinking of theirs in particular, but you know, as as a lawyer looking at it, how would you warrant these things, or would you try and make sure you didn't warrant it because you you don't know what it's going to do? There's there's a lot of uncertainty with a, a autonomous vehicle action.
1: I think that if I were Uh, representing a a company that's producing automated vehicles, I I would be making the similar kinds of warranties that regular automobile manufacturers make. But in addition, I might be making certain disclaimers, things like um, we are not warranting uh, what happens if you fail to maintain attention to the road and, and things like that and trying to sp- specifically make sure that the driver knows that the driver is responsible for maintaining attention at all times, keeping hands on the wheel, things like that. Those would be in my document. Well, do you think they always will be responsible for that? I mean, do you, or do you think that
0: at some point we're going to have autonomous vehicles in which you can just get in the back seat, you know, or, or take a nap and let it take you where you want to go?
1: I think we will have that, For sure, it's just a matter of time, but it's going to take some time. We uh, have these different levels of autonomy that that the – SAE International has 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 come up with a classification of, of autonomy, and it it ranges from no automation or and then driver assistance systems to uh, you you can uh, you can let the car do all driving tasks, but you have to pay attention, even though you don't have your hands on the wheel, to take control at at a certain time when the system gives back control to you. To uh, a higher level, which is you don't need to pay attention at all, you could be asleep in certain geographical areas. So if you're going from San Francisco down to San Jose, you don't need to pay attention at all, at all, at any time in the, in the trip. To uh, the highest level uh, in which there's automated vehicles uh, that can travel anywhere um, without human intervention, may have no steering wheel, brake, or throttle. There's a lot of industry discussion about whether that last one is feasible at all. And I give the example of uh, oftentimes I'm going with my uh, daughter's Scouts BSA troop under the umbrella of Boy Scouts of America to Cutter Scout Reservation, and we were going up these roads where it's a lane and a half, and you have to be very careful of not, of not uh, hitting somebody <laughs> head on uh, because the, the road is so narrow, and there's not even a yellow stripe down the middle, and there's sheer cliffs on on the, the side of the road not really steep, but still there it, it could be really bad if if you have one false move of the vehicle. So I, I think about that in the Santa Cruz Mountains and say I don't think that we can have that ultimate level of autonomy of vehicles that can go literally everywhere when we still have those kinds of roads. Um, so, But I think that more realistically, in upcoming decades, maybe in 20 years or so, we will have what's called level four autonomy, which is in certain geographical areas. And I'm thinking not just freeways, not just urban areas, but probably in suburban areas and maybe the main roads in more rural communities, but not the roads to Cutter Scout Reservation. We would have autonomy everywhere in those, in those areas where you could literally fall asleep in the back of the vehicle. But it's going to take a, a couple decades at least to, to have that.
0: Yeah, no, I understand, and frankly, I've been on some of those roads up near Santa Cruz, and I don't like driving on them myself. And that—that's part of the thing. I mean, you could you could easily have something that works on the highway, and you know that it can get from L.A. to San Diego, for example. You know, just just taking one road and getting going from point A to point B on something that's very familiar. Um, but you know, the the long and the short of it is ultimately. The exercise of driving um, is taking a a 1,000-pound vehicle um, at high speeds uh, in a way that is going to uh, either damage itself and the people in it or hurt whoever it runs into if it happens to run into something, right? So, you know, I mean, you're not ever going to take that out of driving, no matter how smart the car is. There's going to be bad roads. There's going to be bad Situations. There's going to be things that fall in front of you, or, or people that walk in front of you, or deer that walk in front of you, you know. And and if you're going fast enough and you're heavy enough, there's nothing you can do to stop it.
1: Yeah, we do not suspend the laws of physics when we when we drive.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, that brings up a a, a different question that that we you and I haven't talked about much, but it might be it might be interesting to our listeners. I've I've uh, I've been um doing some writing and one of the things we're thinking about is um how to ensure this kind of an issue. Um knowing that, for example, the statistics say it's like there are likely to be ten times less accidents with um autonomous vehicles if that's all that's on the road, um, rather than those who are being driven by us who are distracted and turn the radio channels and, and have other problems. Um you know, how do you ensure that kind of thing? One of the stuff that we have been thinking about is maybe suggesting that every state has a no-fault insurance pool that is funded by sales of autonomous vehicles. And then if an autonomous vehicle gets into an accident that is, you know, while it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, that someone hurt by it could claim against that no-fault pool rather than having private insurance or rather than having a uh, product liability suit where you go try and sue the the manufacturer, even though the car was doing what it was supposed to be doing. Um, Do you have any thoughts about insurance or how you might do some of that?
1: I can see the benefit of that kind of system, and we have these specialty uh dispute resolution systems for like workers compensation so we have this special field and and special procedures so i could see the benefit of that and and maybe that would take out some of the uh some of the uh potential for uh, jury verdicts that might be far beyond what is reasonable and fair in certain situations but i also feel that the insurance industry itself is undergoing a revolution and and moving towards uh, trying to take into account automation in its insurance products. And there are methods that manufacturers can use, like setting up a captive insurance company, to provide special coverage, bespoke coverage, bespoke policies, that cover the exact risks that a, a certain product might uh, might have and be able to provide that that insurance coverage that it needs is, that it needs and then the manufacturer can get the insurer to get reinsurance from reinsurers out there to mitigate to manage its risk so there are things that a, a manufacturer can do to create the appropriate level of coverage that it has so that it, it manages its risk. But, you know, as a general matter, what, what I could foresee is having less of the typical type of car insurance policy that you have now where there was a, a big liability component. If you as a driver make a mistake, as we have more and more automation then move to automated driving, that the, the, the amount of coverage that we need for that is going to go way down, and we were going to be shifting more coverage to product liability coverage because the manufacturers – if, if the, if the vehicle is in automated mode at the time of the, the, the crash, it's almost certain that it's going to be a product liability claim as opposed to a driver negligence claim. Having said that, I don't believe that right now I can see the complete demise of insurance coverage of the traditional kind because there will always be claims against the owner. Uh, slash operator that well maybe the car wasn't maintained properly maybe the tires were t- oh
0: yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah.
1: no that's so definitely have- true yeah
0: you're you're definitely going to have uh, cases where 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 somebody screwed up and that's yes. obvious and then you can and, yeah. and you'll have a you'll have someone on that it's just that the to me the interesting questions are are much more when nobody screwed up and yet there's still an accident I mean it's very much how from a lawyer's standpoint like like, why we even have a, uh, a Uniform Commercial Code. I mean, a lot of Uniform Commercial Code is put together to deal with cases where the parties that are involved with the lawsuit weren't the ones that caused the problem. And somebody has to be left holding the bag. And so the Uniform Commercial Code then assigns um, uh, who, who holds liability in some of those cases. Um, but what what's interesting here is, you know, the new technology is seeming to change the insurance industry as we speak. You know, as, as we, I'm sure you've dealt with cases thus far since you do breach uh, issues um, that deal with cyber insurance. And that's generally not more than 10 or 15 years old as an industry into itself. So I imagine some of that kind of, um, creativity will go to insuring autonomous vehicles in the future.
1: Yes, and, and just robotics and AI in general, will, th- those industries will need insurance coverage that covers the actual risk that they're facing and, and risks that we maybe even can't imagine at this point given the, the innovative nature of some of these products. So we'll have a lot of innovation in the insurance industry, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for new types of insurance products out there
0: yeah no question. well, i'm we're we're close getting close to closing out, but before i we go to the last question, I want to just check and see if there's there's anything else with uh, um liability in AI and robotics that we haven't covered that you you want to make sure that our listeners think about. I mean, what were the most interesting pieces to writing this chapter?
1: One of the interesting pieces was the big dollar risk that companies face. That, that was one piece, and, and companies need to take that seriously. The second piece is I viewed all of these product liability types of matters through the lens of the jury system in the United States, where companies need to think down the road as they're going through the development process, they should think of themselves of, uh, of being subject to that kind of system where their decisions in the design phase might be second guessed by a jury down the road. And that makes perhaps, uh, that, put, that puts some emphasis during the design phase on safety and, and understanding that they, that they need to be very, very careful about how they produce their products. And I, and I feel like companies can take actions today to prevail or at least mitigate the liability in a lawsuit down the road for a product that they haven't even finished. If they can take the proactive steps today, they can mitigate their liability risk down the road. And I also think about the role of things that you wouldn't normally think of as being really that, that tied into safety or, or liability risk management of things like document retention, where if you are maintaining the documentation showing that your company not only met the industry standards but went above and beyond industry standards, those maintaining those documents over time in an efficient records management system would help the company win the cases down the road. That's not something that people normally think about. And then in general, there are things that people can do to prepare for, for litigation down the road of, of creating specialty bar groups or brief banks and, and thinking in trade groups about the issues that we are going to be facing with AI and robotics down the road. I think there are things that companies can do today to prepare for product liability litigation down the road.
0: That sounds good. Well, uh, one other question on this. One of the things that we've seen so far is in the narrow AI examples of, for example, chess master programs, or most recently the Go program that, uh, that, that beat the um, world Go champion, um, then created its own program, its own progeny, that that program created that then could beat the original program nine times out of 10. Um, yes what what do you think about um, either a company protecting itself or or what kind of liability do you see for companies when they're using a third or fourth or fifth generation um, AI that has been created by
1: other AI I think that's going to be a huge issue down the road and well have these uh, we'll have cases and, and reported cases on whether uh, the 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 AI producing an AI system that then encodes some software, there's some break in the causal chain between the the first manufacturer and the harm that was caused by the third system. I I can definitely see case law on those types of issues. So it it, it will be a huge issue. But I'm not
0: sure you or I will be alive or practicing when all of this comes to.
1: We may be retired by that time. Yes, exactly.
0: Well, let me, let me ask you the question that I'm asking everybody in the, in the podcast series, which is, what, what is your favorite um, depiction of artificial intelligence in the media?
1: When I think about movies, I, I think about th- three movies that I will give you. Um, one is, uh, in Star Trek Nemesis, we have the character of Data, and data is an artificially has artificial general intelligence and in the the movie nemesis is uh, involved in the enterprise's battle against shinzon who is a rogue romulan who who takes over the romulan empire and and threatens the enterprise and data sacrifices himself at the end of the film to save the card and to destroy the scimitar and save the day. And I just think about how data is, has all these characteristics of uh, nobility and valor and courage and loyalty to friends. And those are the best characteristics that I can think of in in humankind. So I, I, I really admire the way that um, that Star Trek Nemesis and Star Trek the series, TV series, portrays Data in general. Um, I also wanted to mention 2001: A Space Odyssey, and of course, people talk about the HAL computer as being an example of, of artificial general intelligence and and the threat that 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 could pose. But one of the things that is less talked about is the way that the aliens are portrayed in 2001, which is in a, in a very abstract manner. You actually don't see them in in the film, but what Kubrick talked about was he envisioned a biological species that early on had uh, minds and bodies like ours but then became immortal machine entities as he says in a 1968 interview and then over innumerable eons they could emerge from the chrysalis of matter transformed into beings of pure energy and spirit. So that's a very abstract way of showing superintelligence that at one time had been essentially machine based and so you see um, a, a very indirect way of portraying it in the film that I thought was really well done and the, and the downloading of information into David Bowman and he becomes the star child at the end of the film. But the one that I really enjoyed most of all was Bicentennial Man, which was uh, a movie uh, from the 1990s, uh, 1999, and portrayed Robin Williams as this essentially service robot for the Martin family. And he has this sense of creativity that others of his kind didn't have. And that and he had a, a level of curiosity and reaching and striving to become human, similar to what data had. And by the very end of the film, uh, he wanted to become fully human. He sought uh, an approval of that from World Congress. and. Uh, Some like the United Nations, and uh, Congress turned him down and said, because you're immortal, you, you can't have that, and uh, people would be jealous. Of, and then so he made himself mortal. He, he figured out a way of, of putting organic material in his body that would then break down over time, and he would die. And he even married somebody or pur- purported to do that, but he reached for humanity, and at the very end, the World Congress, uh, in the movie, the World Congress approved him being declared as a human and his marriage to uh, the character Portia as being a valid marriage, but he died the instant before they announced it. And Portia asserts at the end of the movie that Andrew, the, 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 the robot, already knew the answer to whether or not he was human. In other words, that humanity was something that, he, that was always within him that he developed over time and he incorporated all of the best characteristics of humanity, humor and compassion, and he had it within him the whole time. And he didn't need the declaration from the World Congress, but of course that was great. But he achieved it through the course of the movie.
0: Well, as, as they say, um, you know, uh, the, the Wizard of Oz didn't need to actually give the lion courage. He had it right. all along. That's Um, And and it is very similar. But, yeah, no, and I really appreciate the way that you, in particular, think about um, mirroring the best aspects of humanity in artificial intelligence, which is, you know, what we all hope and what we all, um, uh, I think, will be striving for as we move forward with this. And I think one
1: of the things I I would close with is to say that now that I see this course of development of AI and robotics. I like this aspect of demoting, devoting my my current law practice to AI and robotics because I look at what I could be doing with my law practice, and I think that this is the highest and best use of my capabilities. And I feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself when I get involved in AI and robotics law. The, the things that I do are not just helping client A achieve result X, but rather, Uh, I could be doing something that helps society and the country and the world beyond just the uh, the matters that I'm doing, and and partly through our publications and programs, and and I should include uh, mention that in January we have the very first Artificial Intelligence and Robotics National Institute at the American Bar Association at Santa Clara Law School in Santa Clara, California, January 9th and 10th, 2020. If you're interested in it, you could go to ambar.org slash AI 2020, but with all of the work that I could be doing, I feel like this is the best way that I could contribute something to the community, the nation, and world.
0: Well, and I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, you're setting precedents that uh, that will resonate uh, throughout time and throughout the industry. Uh, thank you so much, Steve. We really appreciate you taking the time today, um, and as uh, nobody else knows but the two of us, we, uh, I also appreciate because we had some technical difficulties and I had to bring you out here a second time. So you, as always, are are uh, patient and thoughtful and, and
1: deeply appreciated. Thank you very much, Ted, and and thank you very much for having this this series. It's, it's been fantastic. Sure. And we'll I'll talk to you soon. See, you. thanks.
0: Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series. To the extent that. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.